It's a reading from Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up to him in order to test him, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write the certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her, her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are continuing our, our series here through Mark's Gospel. And one of the things that I've tried to note or spent some time trying to, to make note of last week was the middle section in Mark's Gospel, uh, basically midway through chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, is there, his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And it really could be bracketed as his manual of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And last week we looked at the previous passage and and looked at what uh, Jesus means by a cross-shaped life. What does it mean? Uh, What does it look like when the gospel begins to make an imprint, a deeper and deeper imprint on your life? And interestingly, in the course of his journey to Jerusalem as he's teaching his disciples, Mark uh, includes this encounter with the Pharisees on marriage, in particular, a testy question by the Pharisees, whom we haven't seen for several chapters now. They kind of dropped off there for a little bit, but now they're back. And they're there to test Jesus about this, this topic of, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so what I want to do tonight is I want to look at um, this passage to try to learn what does Jesus think about marriage? How does he understand it? How it works? Uh, what, what is a definition for it? And then we'll look at the end, uh, how, do you get, how do you get the power to do it? So what I want to do tonight is summarize what Jesus is teaching for us in this way. That Jesus here teaches a renewed vision for marriage that opens up to us the mystery of the gospel. That Jesus is teaching us a vision for marriage that brings us into the very heart of the good news. So I want to look at two, two views of marriage briefly with you and then try to show you how Jesus defines marriage and, and then where that takes us in order to find the power for marriage. So that we'll look at two views, the definition and the power for it. Uh, let's start here with looking at the two 
two views of marriage. The first one we see here represented in the Pharisees. We'll call this the, the ancient or even traditional view. Uh, in traditional cultures, particularly in the First East, in the in ancient Near East, and in ancient Judaism, marriage essentially was for the purpose of social and economic security. You got married because that's how you acquired uh, wealth, that's how you acquired status, that's how you had children that continued to further the, the, the family, and all of that served social and economic security. One, one commentator puts it like this, that in ancient Judaism, marriage was not regarded as a union of, of equals for the mutual benefit of both husband and wife, but rather as an institution whose chief purpose was the establishment and continuance of the family. And that's the, that's the world that these Pharisees are coming out of. And in fact, they, they quote this passage in, in, in verse 4 that is quoted pretty much from, uh, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can go and look it up. And if you do, what they say here and what you read there really don't fit very well together. But it is a passage where Moses does describe what happens when a marriage falls apart. The Bible is actually very realistic, not only in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. It recognizes, even though it has such a high and grand view of marriage, it also recognizes that the world is not as it should be. People's hearts are not as it should be. And it does happen that marriages fall apart. And so Moses had written this concession for God's people. And really, if we had time to go into it a little bit more, what he wrote there was really to protect the woman in the marriage. Because there was a lot of debate back in various Jewish schools of thought about what uh, made it okay for a husband to write a certificate of divorce. Some were really narrowly defined. Some were very broadly defined. Some were so broadly defined that a husband could divorce his wife for any reason that he felt like was in his best interest. It was not a good situation for a woman at all. And this view really was a result of this idea that marriage was for social and economic advantage. Now, here's a totally different view. We'll call this the modern view. Uh, the modern view is, is in many ways very different, where the purpose of marriage is to marry someone who will make me happy. And, in fact, I want to read you a brief quote from a New York Times article back in 2010, the title of which I think sums it up pretty well. The title is, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And in this article we read, The best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual. Let me start that again. The best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. 
And they want partners who make their lives more interesting. In other words, a prevailing view of marriage in our day and time is that marriage is about personal fulfillment. That I marry someone who will bring into my life what I need to thrive, to excel, to succeed, to be fulfilled. The other, the spouse in many ways, now no one would necessarily say it quite this way, although she gets pretty close to it, is not a, not a, uh, a friend of the deepest, most significant kind, but really a means to an end. So here we have these two views. We have the ancient view, the traditional view, alongside the modern view. But in our, t- our day and time, it's not only the question, isn't only about the purpose of marriage, of what is it really for, why do people do it? But we now also live in a day and time where marriage, the question also arises, who is it for? And uh, in the last year, we now find ourselves in a day and time when, in which a biblical view of marriage, as traditionally understood, is now a subset of what the state regards as legally recognized marriage. So in other words, let me put it like this to you, that Biblical, all biblical marriages might be legally recognized by the state, but not all legally recognized marriages by the state might be considered a biblical marriage in line with God's intention and his design as laid out in the scriptures. And it would be very valuable and very worthwhile to have a debate about that and where we are in our cultural moment here in the United States. Uh, in light of the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriages. But that's not what I'm going to dive into tonight. That's not really what I see my job as for this evening. What I see my job as for tonight is to try to explain to us from this passage what Jesus understands marriage to be all about. And therefore, I think the key for us to address this question of marriage, it requires us to do two things. First of all, it requires us to admit hardness of heart. Look what Jesus here, after he asked the Pharisees about what did Moses command you, and they they reply, and Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote that. Now, if we could apply that a little bit, Jesus is essentially saying that every marriage when it begins to break down and deteriorate, begins with hardness of heart. That's the reason that he gives here. And in the Bible, that word translated hardness of heart is almost always used to describe the human heart's attitude not towards another human being, but towards God. It's a way the scriptures talk about our rebellion against him. And his word and his will for your life. But the other side of that coin is you can't ever really have a hard heart towards God and it not impact relationships. Particularly one that is described in the scriptures as the most intimate relationship in the Bible. So think for a moment. How might hardness of heart towards God manifest itself horizontally in a marriage? I think we could sum it up in one word, self-centeredness. 
So here Jesus, if we're going to take seriously what he has to say, we have to deal with or at least be willing to admit that in marriage, when it begins to break down or there are struggles or frustrations, are you willing to admit that there is perhaps hardness of heart towards God, but also even self-centeredness towards your spouse? But then not only do we need to admit that, secondly, we also need to base our life on what is written, just like Jesus did. It's very interesting here. Notice what Jesus does when these Pharisees come and ask him this question. He goes straight to the Bible. He goes straight to Moses. And then when they refer to Moses, he goes back to Moses again, but he goes back to the very beginning of creation, the very first marriage in the Bible. And it's, it's striking, I, I just want to briefly point this out to you, that the word here that Mark uses in verse 2, when he describes the Pharisees who came to test Jesus, that word test is the same word that is used to describe Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. When he is met with, with Satan and his tempting, his testing, it's the same idea. And how does Jesus respond to his temptation, to that testing. Again and again, Jesus' response is, it is written. He goes back to the scriptures. Now, what does that teach us? What that teaches us is if we're going to understand Jesus and his vision for marriage, we have to build our lives on the scriptures. They have to become not just, it's not enough to say that you just think they're true. Assuming you believe that, you might not. Or that they're authoritative. Assuming you believe that, and I realize you might not. It's not enough to say that, to follow Jesus. Because Jesus builds his life on the scriptures. He patterns his life after the scriptures. So, let's look to see here what he does say about what marriage is as he tries to help us to do the same. Look here in verses 6 to 9. After uh, he he. The, the, the Pharisees give him their response. In verse 6, Jesus goes back and says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What's the foundation for Jesus' vision for marriage? He takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. That's where he quotes from. In verse 6, that God made them male and female. What's he trying to communicate? What he's saying here is simply very, very briefly three things. What he's saying is that every man, men and women, human beings, were created equal, were created different, and were created for relationship with one another. Created equal, created different for relationship. That is Jesus' foundation for marriage. And if we had time, I, I would like to go into that more and talk about friendship and relationships in the church generally because it has profound implications, not just for married people, but even for people who are not married, what he says there. But the foundation for Jesus' vision for marriage is that 
Every human being is created with dignity and value and purpose, and marriage in no way alters that. But so then what is the definition that he gives here? Look here in verse 8. He says, The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Here is, in a very, uh, in a nutshell, Jesus' definition for marriage is it is a comprehensive union. It's a comprehensive union. This language here, when Jesus says, quoting now from Genesis chapter 2, that they shall become one flesh. Now, that certainly has in view sexual union between one man and one woman. But it goes much, much deeper than that. Now, why do we know that? Well, this word here that uh, translated as flesh, it, it, it includes the whole person. So, for example, in Joel chapter 2, one of the minor prophets, in talking about the, the great day of the Lord, what God will do, he says that he will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God is not saying he's going to pour out his spirit on your muscle tissue or something. He's saying he's going to pour out his spirit on all people. So when we read this, that they become one flesh, Jesus is describing here a comprehensive union of two whole people. And it's a comprehensive union of one's whole self with another. You don't cease to be an individual, but this union is so profound emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, socially, that the Bible actually speaks of a husband and a wife as one. So I'll give you somewhat, uh, I think, a somewhat lighthearted example of this. Meg and I, we, we are in our 16th year of marriage. And from time to time, uh, I will call her or she will call me or I will text her or she will text me. And usually it's with some idea for the evening, let's say, a plan that we'd like to do with one another or with the boys. And I or she will respond by saying, I was just picking up the phone to call you to say the exact same thing. And that has happened so many times that we now have this funny little inside joke where we always say to one another, well, we must be married. That's an example of, of what I think the Bible means by this one fleshness. You become so connected to this person that you begin to finish their sentences. You begin to actually experience life almost in very similar ways. Spouses share their mind, their feelings, their hearts, their, their money, their resources, their responsibilities even. Spouses share their bodies together in such a way that there's at least a potential for the creation of new life. Now, what does that mean for us practically? Practically, it means this, that if you share your heart, but not your resources, or let's say if you share your body with someone, but not your future, according to the Bible, that's only half a marriage. That's not, that's not a marriage according to the Bible. A marriage, according to the Bible, 
is a comprehensive union of our whole lives. So let me ask you, those of you who are married, how is this comprehensive union working? How is it going? Are there ways in which you have allowed in that marriage little fractures to seep in and you've let them go unnoticed? Let me give you a very practical, concrete example. And I'm not telling you you have to do this, all right? I'm just trying to get you to think about this. Does your spouse know all of your passwords on on the internet? Or could they have access to it? How would you feel if your spouse read your email? Those are just two very sort of everyday basic kinds of things. How would you feel about that? And what does your answer tell you about the nature of your marriage and the comprehensive union Jesus is speaking to here? And precisely because this is a comprehensive union that is so intertwined, it is incredibly vulnerable. You're being asked to put your entire life out in front of some, someone else. You're entrusting yourself to that person. And it requires a structure. It requires a structure that can handle that. So what kind of structure might that be? Let me try to summarize it for you here. As Jesus here describes in verse 7 and verse 9, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That hold fast is, in other translations, cleave to his wife, cling to his wife. It's in a one-word phrase for a permanent, exclusive bond based on promises of future love. I, uh, I've done several weddings, and, and I really haven't been asked this yet, and I'm kind of hoping I don't get asked this, is sometimes people like to write their own vows. And I, uh, I would probably tell you no. <laughs> and the reason is, almost always when I've seen people write their own vows, usually what they, what they are, they're not vows. They're not promises of commitment of future love. They're, they're present statements of feeling about how I feel about this person right now or how they make me feel right now. But see, what Jesus has in view here, the structure is a covenant. It's a permanent bond where you are binding yourself to this person not based on how you feel today or even tomorrow or even ever. What you are saying is, I am promising that I will forever be bound to you and that I will never leave you. You are promising to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future regardless of the undulating internal feelings and circumstances. Now, what Jesus also tells us here is it's not only this binding relationship, it's an exclusive one. When Jesus says here that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This means that 
the, a, a marriage is the most important relationship in your life. An obvious question to ask is, how is that going? Whether you may be a husband or a wife, are you guarding your marriage like that? And one way you can tell is, if you have a friendship or an interaction with someone that makes your spouse uncomfortable, you probably need to do whatever you can to bend over backwards to assure that spouse that this marriage is the most important relationship in your life. So the structure of the marriage is an exclusive permanent bond based on promises of future love. Now this vision that Jesus gives us for marriage, it's profound, it's deep, and it is incredibly demanding. So how do we get what we need in order to have marriages like this? I want us to take a moment and look, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can flip over there. But Ephesians chapter 5 is where we discover how the gospel and marriage interpret one another or explain one another. So to get the power for marriage... I want you to think about this idea, this term that um, actually I learned and and heard, first of all, from uh, Tim Keller, who's up in New York, who describes marriage as gospel reenactment. That marriage is gospel reenactment. That's what it's all about. Marriage, as we saw earlier, it's not really about social or economic security, and it's not about personal fulfillment. What we discover here is that marriage is a great mystery. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, here Paul has just quoted again from the same passage Jesus has quoted from Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound. Literally, it's a mega mystery. It's a great mystery or even a great secret. What he's saying here is that marriage is something that God designed, that he created, and God explains the gospel through marriage. It's not the only relationship he explains it through. In fact, I would say we could say the same thing about friendship, biblical friendship. That the scriptures bring friendship into the gospel and completely rearrange it. So, for example, just briefly, Jesus in John chapter 15, he says to his disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is bringing his life, death, and resurrection into friendship. Here, Paul brings it into marriage And this great mystery, he tells us what it is in verse 32. He says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, what's interesting here is earlier in verse 25, Paul is teaching on marriage to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. You see, the key to this is that here we see Paul comparing a husband's love for his wife to Jesus' love for his people. And, and let, me, let me just pause here. I know I'm, I am treading in very treacherous waters <laughs> as a pastor in our day and time. There's language in here about wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. But here's something I want you to think about. A husband here is being compared to Jesus suffering and dying on the cross for his people. And wives are called to submit to their husbands. And I have, I've had a lot of women come and ask about that. Not here, some here, but many elsewhere. And it bothers them. And I understand that. I don't like the idea of submission either. And what I find interesting is I can never think of one time ever a man coming to me and saying, you know, I am really bothered that what Paul says here is I am supposed to love my wife like he loves the church. I don't like the fact that this means I basically have to die a cruciform life. And here's the thing, and this, I am, I am, what's the saying in the South, um, getting in your grill <laughs> for, for the men. Why aren't you more bothered by that? I think the women are taking this way more seriously than you are. You ought to be outraged at what this says. The women are, and I think they're probably, frankly, paying way more attention Are you paying attention to what this says? Jesus is saying, or excuse me, Paul is saying that you as a man, as a husband, are to give your life up for your wife. Now, this might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I think if your wife was persuaded, or if you're not married yet and you do get married someday, if your wife was persuaded you believe that, and they saw that, my guess is, in most cases, they would gladly follow you. So here's the thing. Gospel reenactment, marriage is a lens for understanding Jesus' love for you. That means that the gospel has to power your marriage. It's the fuel for it. It's the resources for it. The key to marriage isn't looking at your spouse or yourself, but at Jesus. That he is a husband to you. See, husbands, if you are not living a life of self-sacrifice for your wife, you need to look to Jesus. Wives, If you bristle at the scripture's call to submit to your husband, you need to look to Jesus. You see, the the gospel is where we find the power to live this kind of relationship. And it's also the pattern for it. Gospel reenactment is mutual self-giving. If you want to understand what the Bible's vision for marriage is, we need, to, we need to look to Jesus and see Jesus 
He did not look out for his own interests. He gave up his glory, his interests, in order to take on your interests. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, to take away your condemnation and your guilt and your shame. Jesus' vision for marriage is nothing less than his salvation that he brought so that we might find new life in him. So let me ask you, you know, depending on where you might find yourself tonight, uh, whatever your opinion or perhaps your views on marriage might be, the scriptures really do show us that we really haven't understood biblical marriage as God designed it and intended it until we understand it in light of the gospel. So are you struggling in your marriage? Are you struggling to accept the Bible's teaching on marriage? What should you do in those cases? You have to begin again with the gospel. Jesus submitted to his Father for you. It's at the heart of what the gospel is about. Jesus gave up his life for sinners like us. It's at the very heart of what the gospel is about. You need to begin with the gospel. This message that Jesus gave his life for unworthy, undeserving people, are you part of that story? Do you believe that it could be true for you? If so, you are well on your way to grasping what we mean, what Jesus means by marriage as this comprehensive union, this permanent bond based on future promises. Jesus has permanently bonded himself to you in the gospel. He is exclusively devoted and faithful to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. There are no circumstances that will allow him to turn away. Everything that Jesus describes in this chapter, in Mark chapter 10 on marriage, he embodies for all of those who trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for these words, this passage where Jesus helps us to see and to understand his vision for marriage and how through it he brings us right into the heart of the gospel of his self-sacrificial love, of his loyalty and obedience and submission to you. Father, I pray that however these verses strike us, whether they are overwhelming or whether they're uh, irritating or whether they're refreshing, I pray that you would help us by your grace to take them in and to see through them the glory of Jesus, the goodness of the gospel and the hope that we need for marriage this side of heaven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.